Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Broadcasting from Huntington Beach, California, and New York City, coast to coast, a big welcome to all of my listeners out there from the Big Apple and to L.A. and everything in between. And I'm Dave Nassani on the Caregiver Day radio show, coming to you live from the syndicated all-positive talk radio network, HealthyLife.net, broadcasting in all 50 states and 135 countries, with my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg, who is tardy right at the moment because of the Manhattan traffic or what have you, but she'll be joining us later, and hopefully it'll be sooner than later. <laughs> and we do have an exciting show planned for you today. We'll be interviewing author Jessica Powell, who will tell us about the value of humor in caregiving. Gosh, caregivers need to hear that, don't they? And just a reminder that all our shows are available on HealthyLife.net on-demand page and also on our membership website, CaregiverDave.com. And we're proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and one of the top six best podcasts on caring.com, as well as number three out of thousands of caregivers on uh, caregiver podcasts on Feedspot. So if you go right now to caregiverdave.com and click on the free download page, you'll get a three free gifts for you. Don't ever let free gifts go unclaimed. That's what my dad always used to say. <laughs> But hey, before I introduce Jessica Powell, I want to take this opportunity to thank our last week's guest, Humble the Poet. <laughs> yeah, it's a very interesting interview, and you can watch that one uh, on all of the, uh, what am I trying to say? You can listen or watch that interview on all of our uh, healthylife.net networks and our membership website as well. All right, enough of that. Jessica Powell, she's the author of The Big Disruption, totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story that has been read by over 175,000 readers. Wow. Jessica is in the former is she's the former vice president of communications for Google and served on the company's management team. She's the author of Literary Paris and her fiction and nonfiction has been published in The Guardian. The New York Times, Wired, and Medium Magazine. And she's also the co-founder and CEO of a startup that builds software for musicians. Wow, this is a talented girl. Jessica, we're so honored to have you on the show. A real celebrity, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Great. Um, talk up a little bit. You're a little low. Is that better? Much better. Thank you. So I'd like to ask my guests to take a minute or two and just tell us who is Jessica Powell? Why was she put on this earth? Uh, <laughs> that is a very daunting question. Um, uh, but I, um, so I will, rather than the why I was put on this earth, which I, I think I'm still figuring out, um, but I, uh, uh, I have worked in technology for about uh, 15 years. And I started off in journalism, but then quickly shifted over to tech, not because of some huge love or purpose of tech, though I thought it was cool, but simply because I needed a job. And I was living abroad at the time and um, 
uh, Google was the one place that would hire me. So um, wow. it's not the usual story, but I loved it and, um, and still really enjoy working in tech. Usually it's the opposite. People say Google's the only one who didn't hire me, but you're the exception to the rule. There must be something very special about you. Well, anyway, <laughs> your, lucky. your lucky. book your book talks a lot about the value of humor, and I can't think of a better topic for caregivers because <laughs> they're in such a depressing and difficult situation, most of them, and humor just might save their lives from dying since 30% of them actually die before their loved ones do, according to AARP. But um, before we get into the interview, let's start with a brief description of uh, how you became the... Uh, communications, the head of communications for Google, and what made you write your book? Uh, well, like I said, it was um, it was really a, a fluke, a great one, um, that I started working there. I had moved to London uh, and applied for so many different jobs, and I was not a particularly attractive candidate, I think, for a lot of places. I was an American without work papers. Uh, and every place I applied, I had almost no callbacks, but Google did call me back, and that was how I ended up starting. And I worked uh, in communications there um, and also in Asia for them and eventually made it to the headquarters where I then ran communications. Uh, the book was actually written between two stints at Google when I was at a startup, and it was this very, very crazy place where we were telling the world that we were, you know, saving the world and whatnot. Um, and the truth was a little bit different from that. And not only that, I saw a lot of companies around me where I felt like what we were telling people about what, we, what, what they were doing was very different from what was actually happening internally. Um, it all seemed like a huge marketing trick. Um, and I think it was in the process of watching all of that that I started to question some of the things that the tech industry says and started writing not because I thought it would be a book, not because I thought it was going anywhere, but simply for catharsis. I was trying to make sense of this crazy place that I was working at where everything we said was different from what we actually did <laughs> and wanted to find a way of how did we get here and where were these companies going and why did they overpromise so much and what actually drove them to be bigger and so competitive and so forth. And so that's how it all started. Um, as it as it grew, it certainly took on more of a focus, which was trying to shed some critical but humorous light on the industry and ask people to question a little bit more about what we're building and what are the, some of the potential consequences of what we're building and to ask those questions much earlier in the process. So you were actually one of the very first ones to start questioning them. I mean, it's 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 coming to a head now. You're hearing more and more people coming against Google and questioning what they're doing and what their motivation is, and now they're having government hearings. So I don't know. If if they were smart, they would see the writing on the wall and change their behavior, don't you think? <laughs> well, I think there's actually always been a lot of questioning within the companies. Um, that, really? that, well, one that's... of the great things about Silicon Valley is that there is a large mind share, like employee voice. People do listen to the employees quite a bit compared to other industries. Uh -huh. But I think just everything happened so fast and that there was always um, people erred on the side of build go as Facebook's motto used to be, you know, um, build fast or what is it, uh, build and break things or whatever it was, <laughs> go fast and break things, rather than saying, which is not such an inspirational model, go fast, but also do it thinking through the consequences. Like not yeah. many people are going to get excited about that motto. Um, and so I think that's how we've ended up in the current situation. But I wanted to do all of it through humor because I think that 
when you, it's important to have a serious lens on things. Again, whether it's a caregiving situation or something like literature, it's important to have nonfiction voices and a hard critical look at things. But I think that humor can connect yeah. with people in a different way. And particularly when you're criticizing the industry, if you can do it in a way that makes the tech workers laugh and resonates with them, <laughs> they might stick around to pay attention a little bit more to the critical stuff versus if right from the bat you're telling them they're evil people that are trying to steal all of their data. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, if you can get a tech person laughing, then uh, it must be really funny. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, is is Google and Facebook and all the other tech companies, are they really as one-sided politically as every as their critics claim that they are, that you know they're they're censoring uh, conservatives and this and that, or is that just kind of overblown and, and oh, I are think it's really very balanced. So there is no balance, but I think it's overblown. <laughs> Meaning, I absolutely think that the valley tends to lean left. Um, the just if you were to look at political donations, the vast majority of donations are to Democratic candidates. Um, all of that is true. At the same time, I've never seen any sign of interference in something like search results. You know, one of the things that I remember over the past few years, people have said, oh, we are, the president has suggested that Google, for example, was, was um, censoring search results. Uh, I've never seen anything like that. The search engineers, I think, take their search job <laughs> more seriously than, even than they do politics. And I also think that when you think about it, even the most cynical view of these companies, it's not really to their benefit to be taking sides. Um, it's one thing for them to take sides in social issues. It's another thing for it to be coming through in the products. And so I think they yeah. take the, that kind of impartiality pretty seriously. Well, they would isolate and uh, alienate half of their customers. Who wants to do that? Right, exactly. So, well, let's talk about your other thing that we're going to talk about. Um, I understand your mom and your aunt took care of your grandmother with Alzheimer's. Uh, what did you notice about your mom and your aunt's health, you know, related to, like, burnout and while caring for uh, your grandmother? Did you Did you notice anything that was going on there? Well, you know, my so my grandmother, when I was growing up, would live with us for maybe three to six months of the year, depending on the year. Um, when she became sick, she stopped traveling for the most part and was living then with my aunt most of the time in North Carolina. If I recall, sometimes she would be out at our house and my mom would take care of her, but those were much shorter stints. Whereas my aunt, my mom's twin, who bore most of the... Twin? Yeah. Um, who who took on most of the caregiving for my grandmother. And it absolutely mm. had an impact on her um, and on her health, right? I mean, it was a very, very stressful, demanding job that never stopped and was highly unpredictable. Um, and I think, and then, of course, as anyone listening to this podcast knows, it's all of those things, but with such a intimate, personal connection to the work in a way that, say, a stressful desk job is not. Mm -hmm. um, and you have all of the emotional and psychological components wrapped up in in this job that can also be very physical. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very hard on her. Well, did you, um, you know, the statistics that I quote all the time is 30% of caregivers die before their loved ones do. And uh, many more, some say up to 60%, 
will become sicker eventually, hospitalized, and need a caregiver of their own. Did that happen to either your mother or your uh, aunt? I think my aunt did face uh, increased health difficulties. Uh, you know, I, I I don't know about the correlation. We never looked into that, but it it's not at all surprising to hear what you said. And she absolutely did. Um, I I think it absolutely did age her, and um, mm. and at the at a minimum, at a minimum, caused a lot of I think psychological stress. Really. So, how old was she, and how old was your grandmother when, because they're twins, they're the same age, uh, when they took over? watching her? That's a good question. You know, being younger and the folly of youth for one kind of <laughs> lumps everyone who's older than them, you know, that range between 50 and 90 in my like ridiculous 20s, I yeah. probably would have thought of it that way. So I could be wildly off. But in my head, my, uh, my mother and my aunt would have been in their 60s. Uh, and my grandmother would have been in her uh, early 80s. Well, and did the see my my mother also had uh, dementia, and she, her her temperament her personality was was such that uh, she was so much like Gracie Allen if you know who she is mm -hmm. George Burns's wife kind of an airhead ditzy, and she was also part of Rose on the Golden Girls and she was also part of Edith Bunker on All in the Family, all rolled into one, and so. When someone like that comes down with dementia, you don't really realize that they have it because, oh, they're always like that. And it wasn't until I used to get those phone calls in the middle of the night asking me, does AM mean daytime or nighttime? You know, when I said, oh, my gosh, we have a problem, Houston. Right. <laughs> so how did her Alzheimer's start? How bad was it? When was she diagnosed? How quickly did it progress? And how bad did it ultimately get? Again, I don't, I'm not super crisp on the timeline because I do think you live these things so differently when you're young and aren't remotely thinking about health. Sure. And two, when it was at some distance, geographic distance from me. Um, Are you 30 years or so difference uh, in your parents' age? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. And uh, and I was yeah, realizing after I told 30s. you. Yeah, but not really, because I also, when I was telling you how old <laughs> my grandmother and my mother was, I basically made it seem as if my grandmother had given birth about uh, when she was 14, which is not <laughs> the case either. So maybe my my mother and her aunt were in their late 50s, and my grandmother would have been in her, you know, early or mid 80s. Um, I get it. But uh, so I don't remember the duration. It certainly went on for several years. Um, it wasn't a precipitous drop. It wasn't like she was diagnosed one day and the next day saying crazy things. Yeah. Um, uh, it was gradual. And I think, you know, um, the, changing, the changing character, of course, when you're talking about dementia, I think for us was the hardest part of it, right? Um, because, you know, she was generally a serious but very loving woman, not whimsical or any kind of what you were just describing. But um, very warm, with at least us as grandchildren, and uh, and we all because we grew up living with her at least part of the year and seeing her frequently. Um, I think it was very hard for all of us to go from this woman that had in part raised us and been part of that to then someone who felt so 
foreign to us, right? And both almost in terms of her inaccessibility, right, in terms of talking to her, but also like the meanness, right? The meanness is really hard to square, like the meanness or the stuff that's out of character. It's it's really hard to reconcile that with all the good memories you have. And it's really hard yeah. to not get up, to not let the present color your past and to um, to to continue to think really fondly on of someone who at times can be very mean, if not to you, to the people around you. Sure. Personality change. Uh, go ahead and take a few minutes and tell us how wonderful your grandmother was. Tell me your, <laughs> some of your most joyous memories of her. Uh, well, my grandmother um, grew up in West Virginia. Uh, she was actually, or at least I was told, the last teacher of a uh, one-room schoolhouse <clears throat> there. And she... Um, and so she was very, in, in some ways, at least the kind of traditional concept of the teacher, right? Like she was, she was firm, but she was also very loving. Um, she was also very much, I think, of her generation in terms of the image of the kind of Betty Crocker housewife, kind mm -hmm. of Norman Rockwell sort of picture as well. So when we would, where they were always every day, there were fresh rolls or cookies to be made. Mm. Um, she she had no sense of smell. She lost it somewhere at some point in her adulthood, but um, was the family cook. Everyone would always talk about Mimi's cookies or Mimi's this or her mashed potatoes or whatever it would be. Um, and every year when we would get together with all of the family in West Virginia, uh, you know, every, you had to try, you had to try all the pies and everything that all the women made, but you had to make sure, you know, but Secretly, we all loved Mimi's stuff the best. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of my memories from childhood are of baking with her um, or trying to convince her to let me eat more of what she had made, um, her picking me up from school uh, and um, and playing games with us and and occasionally saying stuff that um, that just marked her as being of a different generation and of a different mindset. Um, but yeah, it was it was great being able to spend so much time with her growing up. Yeah, sometimes the parents are a little jealous of the relationship that the grandparent has with with uh, you know the uh, the mother's relationship with the with her mother versus the her mother's relationship with the grandchildren. I I see it in my own life. You know, I have seven grandchildren, and a lot of times they'll say, "Well, you never." let me do that when I was seven or whatever. And, you know, grandchildren kind of get away with uh, special uh, favors. And so um, the, did your mother and your grandmother have a good relationship? What was their relationship oh. like? Yeah, it was it was good. Um, good. It, yeah, as I don't know of any. <clears throat> it, it was good. They, they, My mother had a lot of, and my aunt had a lot of affection yeah. for their mother. That makes it so much easier because a lot of times, you know, mother and daughters, and you probably know a lot of people, some of your friends perhaps, <laughs> who who don't have a good relationship with their mother. And then something like this happens, and now they're stuck caring for their mother who they never get along with. And so they they just give it the old college try, and they do their best. But what happens is frequently the mother will start treating their adult daughter like a child mm -hmm. and that just really makes the uh, the sparks fly and caregiving is hard all by itself 
but when you throw in the uh, the mother daughter dynamic, you know, there were unresolved issues, or or uh, you know, they didn't get along, or maybe they didn't even like each other. Um, so your mother was very fortunate because a lot of caregivers out there are just saying, "Wow, I wish wish I had a good relationship with my mother because it was just really really bad." Um, did your mother and her sister continue to take care of themselves, like, you know, keep their hobbies up, uh, uh, whatever they they did that interested them, uh, you know, massages or getting the nails done or going to movies, uh, maintaining friendships and relationships, didn't isolate themselves with their friends, any of that do you know about? I mean, again, it was mainly my aunt, I would say, because my grandmother was living in her home in North Carolina, not in California where my mom is. So my mom would go back there frequently. Um, so it was primarily my aunt. But, yeah, uh, it was harder on her. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> I don't think, no, I don't think she took care of herself, nor I, do I think that she saw that many options to do it. Um, it was not just a psychological strain, but also a financial strain. And yeah. I think it's hard when you already are spending a lot of your time and your money caring for someone to then also feel like it's okay to spend yeah. more money and time on yourself, right? Like it, it, sure. it probably feels like almost an, even if you recognize that you deserve it, it still perhaps feels like something you can't do. Yeah. Listen, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Our featured speaker is a best-selling author who has written numerous books and articles. He's a speaker, life coach, and host of Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver radio program. He frequently appears on television and radio shows all across the country and has even shared the stage with Suzanne Summers at Harvard. But his most important role is caregiver to his beautiful wife, Charlene, for over 22 years. Please welcome Mr. Dave Nassani! I want to share with you a love story. In a couple of weeks, my wife and I will be celebrating 44 years of being together. My wife, Charlene, and I had a fairy tale, storybook, romance, courtship, and marriage for the first 21 years of our lives together. One day out of nowhere, my wife has a headache, the headache of her life. She suffered a massive stroke and it left her severely speech impaired and paralyzed on the right side. And in that moment, our world turned upside down. I gotta tell you, the next two years was like a living hell. I just didn't know what to do. I felt guilty most of the time. I became a caregiver. I didn't even know what a caregiver was. I was experiencing the same problems that other caregivers experience. If you don't take care of you, I can't take care of her. Well, that's why I wrote the book. Now I can teach other caregivers. I'm living proof that you can thrive as a caregiver. My wife and I travel now all over the world sharing our story. One day, life is gonna call upon you to be the captain of your boat. Heck, you might be saving your own life. Thank you. Yeah. And we're back with Jessica Powell, and I'm Dave Nassani on the Caregiver Dave Show. And we're talking about um, Jessica's grandmother and her mother and, and their role in caregiving. So I was I was going to ask, um, guilt is a big factor when you're dealing with siblings because you know I have two two siblings, and when I was caring for my mother, one of them, my sister, was a lot of help, and the other one uh, was you know we lived far away, and so 
I would suspect that he felt a little more guilty because, you know, he he wasn't able to be there more and he wasn't able to give or send money as much as he wanted to. And was that kind of going on with your mother probably? Oh, I think absolutely, right? I think it, the like the fact of the matter, like you said, that she lived further and so couldn't be as much help mm-hmm. compounded with seeing the impact that it had on her sister. Um, yeah, I think it, it absolutely was really, I think it was really hard for, both of them. Yeah. But they remained close throughout. I mean, I think I, um, it, it did not become a source of, as far as I was aware, you know, tension leading to fights or anything like that. I think it was more of a, just a, a both of, both of them feeling, um, that there was an imbalance there, but not really seeing a way to write it. So, did your, Aunt and your mother have the same philosophy that you have as far as coping through humor? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, any funny it, stories? Well, I remember <laughs> one time my grandmother, my aunt walked in, or was it that my grandmother called my mother? And, um, you know, she, her, her, when she would say, she was always saying wacky stuff. <laughs> and it would be, you know, she was always telling us all the different people that had died, like everyone had died, everyone, and even they were living, like even my mom, you know, type okay. of thing, or yeah. you know, she'd call and just inform my mom that the house had burned down the previous night, you know, the house that she was staying <laughs> in with my aunt, um, and I think it, you know what I remember <clears throat> is that I do very distinctly remember that it, it the when she started to really slide into this kind of magical thinking. And it was a new thing for all of us, particularly from a woman who was always um, pretty uh, straightforward. Um, That when that first started, there was an impulse to correct her, right? So like in your AM, PM story, it would be like, well, no, mom, it's AM is this and PM is this, and right now it's PM. Um, And I think the journey was a little bit one of instead of pushing back and trying to impose the quote-unquote correct worldview on my grandmother, it was finding humor in it and and kind of going with it because realizing it didn't, there was no particular value perhaps in her knowing in that moment that it was PM versus AM and she wasn't actually as concerned about it, you know, and it was more like, like let her create that world for you and with you and, kind of riff on it with her, not in any kind of condescending way or making fun of her, but like it it was a way to engage with her and it was a different way to engage with her than it had been, than than the historical relationship had been. And I think it's not different in a lot of ways from what we were talking about earlier in terms of humor is just a really great way, I think, to help reframe things for you and to look at something with a different perspective. And certainly in the case of caregiving, I think, just to give you a bit of respite from the day-to-day. You know, my wife had a stroke, so I'm her caregiver, but it's um, been 22 years now. She lost her speech. She's paralyzed on the right side. But uh, the first two and a half years were really, really bad. And, you know, I, I almost left her there for a moment because I, I wasn't even getting crumbs, you know, and, and she was in the grief process. Anger was her favorite emotion. And, you know, a guy can only take so much anger, you know, before you reach your breaking point. I sat down, I wrote her a letter, and uh, and then I looked at it, and I read it, and I said, I can't give this to her. So I just kind of hung in there, 
went to a community um, caregiver support group, learned if I didn't take care of me, I couldn't take care of her. I wonder if if uh, if she ever spoke about going to a caregiver group, getting support, or how did she get her support? Where did she get her support from? Uh, she might have, and I may just not know that. Um, but I don't recall that being the case. Um, I think for my aunt, it was largely through close friends and my mm-hmm. mom and family. Um, my grandmother uh, had a lot of siblings. Um, we have a really big family in West Virginia. Mm, so well, there helps. were, yeah, so there were a lot of people that even if they couldn't physically travel to North Carolina, would call to speak to her or to speak to my aunt. Uh, my mom and my aunt are close to their cousins and their mm-hmm. the whole West Virginia side of the family, and so I think that probably helped too. So there was a lot of family in um, in in the state she was in. Not as much in where she was living with my aunt, mm. but not terribly far away. They're in West Virginia, and sometimes people yeah. would travel through. Or, but certainly there was a lot of um, phone support. I think. Yeah. Well, in addition to my mother uh, having dementia, and then she died, and then. Uh, my wife's mother had dementia, and so she couldn't really care for her because, you know, because she had a stroke herself. So I had the burden of driving up there two hours, two hours, it could have been worse, up in um, Visalia, if you know where that is, Central California. And I have a gas station on Interstate 5 right at the bottom of the grapevine. If you're ever coming south, make sure you stop into the mobile station and say hello. <laughs> and so... Um, I found a, a difference in personality between the two. My mother was a very sweet, you know, all the people loved her uh, at the nursing home. And, and uh, you know, she was, she was just no problem at all. My mother-in-law, on the other hand, <laughs> some would call her a witch because she was just very nasty and mean and, and uh, you know, bite the hand that feeds you and so on. Once she was sick, you mean? Or- After she was sick, mm-hmm. yes. Because um, I was, you mentioned that your grandmother was mean. I'm assuming that you meant after she was sick as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, it's it's really hard, like you said, to do all the right things because God, your first impulse is to just argue and say no, that's not right, or no, you shouldn't do that. You know, she she started developing these um, delusions that somebody was breaking into her house like every five hours stealing this stealing that because she forgets where she put things and instead of thinking that well maybe my memory is going bad she would would be much easier for her to just decide that she's being uh, broken into she would call the cops constantly and finally they they said you know you got to do something we can't keep coming here and uh, and so it it was really really hard, and sometimes I would not. I'm the caregiver's caregiver, so I'm giving advice to uh, to dementia patients, uh, caregivers, and and I found it hard to take my own advice because I would just get sucked into that, and and it's so so hard. Um, it's hard too when if if they're being rude to, yeah. you know. I remember Turn once. The other cheek. Yeah, I remember in the final weeks. It might have been a week again. Time. It's yeah. kind of collapsed, but um, she had a couple of times to go to the hospital, and mm-hmm. she'd be in the hospital, and she'd be horrible to some of the people, right. you know, taking care of her, and it was, I think it was very embarrassing for my mom or my aunt 
and yeah. and so it was almost like you also had that extra layer of at least perceiving being judged by people, right? right. Um, even though I imagine that a lot of the hospital staff had seen this kind of behavior before in dementia patients, it it's still when you are the caregiver, you, you it, it's hard not to take on, I think, a, a feeling of responsibility for that behavior, almost mm-hmm. in that, like you were saying before, almost as if you were the parent. Yeah. Well, listen, we're up on another break, so we'll be right back. Don't go away. One Arm, One Leg, 100 Words, Overcoming Unbelievable Hardships is about Charlene, a stroke survivor. Back in 1996, Charlene was a healthy, normal, very active 52-year-old woman whose amazing talents resemble that of both a Martha Stewart and a Wonder Woman. But all that changed when she suffered a massive stroke that left her severely speech-impaired and paralyzed on the right side. Who am I? My name is David. I've had the privilege of being Charlene's husband since 1975. We had a wonderful, fairy tale, storybook-like courtship that culminated in our marriage a year later. Charlene had just come out of a marriage where after 10 years, she received two black eyes and a broken nose by her former husband when he came home high on speed. Charlene believed in no second chances of any kind for abuse, so she left. Finding herself all alone in the world with her five and 10-year-old daughters, Cynthia Lorraine and Deborah Lynn, she started raising them by herself for the next two years. Then fate brought us all together. After falling in love with Charlene, Cindy, and Debbie, our love then produced Rebecca Elizabeth. We had a wonderful, normal life for the next 20 years. But today, things are very different for everyone. How about the reaction of nine-time Grammy and Devil Award recipient, the godfather of contemporary gospel Christian music, Andre Crouch? Charlene just won't let the promises of God go and she has not let her circumstances get in the way of her faith. She's not just a survivor, she's more than a conqueror, as the Bible states. You'll be encouraged by her testimony, regardless of what you're going through. Available everywhere. And we're back with Jessica Powell, and I'm Dave Desani on the Caregiver Dave Show on the HealthyLife.net radio network. And, we're and talking Adrian about, has joined you. Oh, Adrian. Welcome to the show, Adrian. It's <laughs> <laughs> so lonely without you. <laughs> Adrian, this is Jessica. Jessica, this is Hi, Adrian. Jessica. Hi, Jessica. <laughs> Sorry I was late. Traffic. It's okay. You <sighs> slap your wrist with a ruler like the nuns okay. used to do for me. <laughs> so we're talking about um, Jessica, uh, brief uh, background, uh, worked for Google at one time, and then she left and wrote a book, and uh, she believes that humor is the best way to deal with things. Uh, her book is kind of a humorous satire on, on the tech industry. Great mm-hmm. read. And so now we're talking about um, caregivers and how humor can uh, alleviate some of their problems mm. and their stresses. And her, her mother actually had dementia, and her... Yeah. Twins, um, uh, not her mother, her grandmother had dementia, and her mother and her twin, her aunt, took care of her. And we're just talking about all the things that uh, that they were going through and how humor helps. Okay. And so let's talk about long-term care insurance because mm. you alluded to me that you don't know what that is. No idea. <laughs> And in today's age, I mean, I got some when I was in my early 50s. I think I was 51. Maybe I was 55. 
and it's still pretty cheap. It was $110 a month. I'm still paying $110 a month. They just raised it a couple of months ago, 15%, so it's still very, very cheap. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's like a this. Uh, you can get as much as you want, and and but mine is like four hundred thousand um, dollars. If I ever come down with Alzheimer's or dementia, and I become unmanageable and uh, can't stay at home anymore, they can put me in a very nice facility. In fact, uh, there's a very nice one at Malibu overlooking the ocean. <laughs> I have enough money. To to do that, my kids joke around and says, "Yeah, we'll get you the cheap place, Dad, because you you'll have dementia. You won't even realize. We'll just tell you you're at Malibu." <laughs> I said, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> so my question to you, Jessica, do you have it? Do your parents have it? Um, because if your parents, if something happens to them, are, you, are they both living? By the way, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. And your your grandmother is not living anymore, right? Right. And when she had dementia, her her husband, your grandfather, died before that or during? He died before her, yeah. Yeah, sad. Um, so basically, have you thought about it? Have you thought about? Uh, I've been thinking about it now too. for a good 20 seconds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. Most people don't think about it at all. Yeah, I didn't know it existed, actually. Adrian, share what you know about long-term care. You got one uh, late in life, didn't you? The I got one The longer you wait, the more expensive it is. So the more expensive it is, and I pay a lot of money. I'll pay it off in 10 years. I have more or less unlimited coverage. So I can live to be 110 <laughs> and not have to worry. Um it was it happened to be there was it was such a popular policy as expensive as it was because it i could have my best friend say take care of me and they would pay her but they'd pay an agency you know so um for an unlimited period of time yeah no matter um, how rich you are your your finances can get drained just like that just like that you know and i learned from my parents who were both insurance brokers and they were the only ones in their community in florida who had gotten it early, and they just watched their friend's money go, and they weren't struggling at all. Um, So that when my father went, uh, my mother was cared for. She had had help every day. Uh, She only had live-in help for part of that time. Uh, she only needed it for part of that time. She had COPD, not dementia. Mm. So it was a different kind of care. But um, when my husband died and I was alone, I was very much aware that uh, I have no children. Uh, I don't expect my brother or sister-in-law to take care of me. I don't expect my niece or nephew to take care of me. Uh, I've had to prepare myself for what was to come because I saw what was entailed when I took care of my husband and uh, I wanted to make sure that I was comfortable with the person that I had and that they weren't just some random person that came in from an agency I wanted Mm. to be able to pick that person myself so um it was the last policy, last of these policies that Prudential wrote. 
Yeah, a lot and of a lot of them are getting dropped now. The policy that yep. I own, uh, State Farm, doesn't even have it anymore because they they're realizing they don't write them anymore. More it's, and more people, uh, and it's too expensive for them. Yeah, they're going broke paying it. So you you got to exactly. get it before you can't get it anymore. Listen, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. And we're back with Jessica Powell, and I'm Dave Nassani on the Caregiver Dave Show. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too. Reclaim your caregiver sanity by learning when to say yes and when to say no. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. And he now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his incredible caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Reclaim your caregiver sanity by learning when to say yes and when to say no will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life, and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today, or buy one for your special caregiver, on sale everywhere, and at caregiverscaregiver.com. Yeah, let's talk about how much it costs to go into a facility. Uh, we're both in Southern California. No, you're in Northern California. I'm in Southern California. Adrian's I'm on, in Manhattan. in New York. Which Adrian is the worst, uh, but um, we put, and this was about four years ago, my mother, five years ago, in a facility that cost $3,500 a month, and it was a very nice facility. Mm -hmm. uh, probably higher now, maybe 4000 a month, maybe 4500 And if you want a really, really nice facility, they can cost anywhere between five dollars and $10,000 a month. You know, but, and remember that nine out of ten of these places, you wouldn't want to put your cat in because they're right. just bad. So you got to really go searching like a needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you when you find one, it's not going to be cheap. So that's why it's it's better to find a policy, a long-term care policy. Um, if you are, I don't know how many siblings you have, but if you're the one who's going to have to end up paying for care for your parents if and when they ever need it, um, then you might want to consider a policy on both of them. Or if you have siblings, uh, chip in and everybody pay you know a certain amount might cost a couple hundred dollars a month for each one of them uh how old did you say they were in their 70s oh, might cost more it would cost more <laughs> yeah yeah but you're still pretty cheap how old are you uh 41 that's oh, the time really to get cheap. it <laughs> so at least you'll be taken care of you know, if you ever have children one day, I, I'm assuming you, you, are you married? I have a bunch of children, like a okay. lot of children. <laughs> a bunch. <laughs> a gaggle? So they a may gaggle, not, a gaggle. You may not have the caregiver's heart, you see, because it's like, it's like your, your aunt. When someone uh, needs care, everyone starts looking around, well, I can't do it because I live in New York. Well, I can't do it because, you know, I'm just not good with that. I can't do it because I'm, I'm in my... And everyone's finger usually ends up pointing to one person, and it's usually uh, the girl, right? Mm -hmm. Is that what happened uh, with you, Adrian? It's usually a daughter, <laughs> absolutely. So, 
just a little warning there that uh, we don't want to freak you out. So <laughs> it's it's not as bad as as you think. But my wife didn't have care, and you know we're we're managing. I have a gas station, so we're we're managing. And uh, now and she has you. She does have me, and I'm 65, and I have aches and pains. And as long as I, <laughs> as long as I stop fixing things and doing things myself, because I'm I I was an auto mechanic, and now I own a gas station, and so I'm so tempted when something breaks to fix it myself. But I've I ended up in the ER three times. The last three times I tried to fix something, <laughs> and I know how to fix things. Time. It's not that I'm incompetent, but it's just that this body just can't do what it used to do. You know, and uh, Jessica, one day you'll get there. <laughs> oh, I'm. That's certainly one one decade with each decade, or even more recent, like more frequently than that. I think you see the the yeah. the, the, the the slow <laughs> decline. Yeah, well, you gotta, start you start to feel things in your forties, but wait, <laughs> <laughs> it gets better. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, in the last six minutes, five or six minutes that we have, uh, do you have any questions for us, Jessica, that you uh, have thought about maybe in the last 20 minutes and said, oh, my gosh, <laughs> maybe? Well, how about this? If you had to find a silver lining in having been a caregiver, what mm-hmm. would, it, what would oh, you there's say? There's lots of silver linings. Uh, there are. As hard as it is, it's the most joyous thing you will probably ever do because – you know, let's face it, your parents took care of you, and now it's it's their turn. And there's a role reversal. You know, you become the parent, they become the child, and now their diaper needs changing. <laughs> and they used to change your diapers. And, and I know that sounds disgusting, but uh, maybe Adrian can put a, a, a nicer spin on it than I just well, did. Well, it's a different spin because I took care of yeah. – my parents were one thing. It was long-distance caregiving. Um no, I did not regret the the many trips I made to Florida, but uh, over many years. But um, they did have their long term care because they knew that we weren't there to take care of them. But I was taking care of my husband and my mother in law, who were both cancer patients at the same time, and I I found it. I would never. I would never. I never had a regret. I always was glad and proud that I did it. Um, they respected me. I respected myself. I didn't have any doubts about it. Um, I I learned how capable I was. Um, and and I think I think the main thing is I had absolutely no regrets. I gave it all that I had. I did not burn out. I really got lucky. I was very smart about it. But yeah, I it was say, someone that I loved, and I couldn't have done it any other way. I always say it's going to happen. You know, it's an eventuality, not if, but when. Mm-hmm. Um, you're either going to need a caregiver or you're going to be a caregiver. But now's the time to think about it. You know, uh, read my book. Uh, it's my life to reclaim your caregiver sanity by learning when to say yes and when to say no. You know, just having uh, boundaries and and just a self care mentality. If you yep. go into caregiving with the right mindset, you're right. going to do all the right things, and you're not going to burn out. It's not going to be disastrous. 
Uh, you need to realize when uh, you can't handle it anymore, when your parents, for example, might need 24-hour care, and that would kill you. So uh, a lot of people make uh, silly promises. I'll never put you in a nursing home, you know, because the parents Which make you say that. Which is not realistic. And, and if you did make a promise like that, you got to renege on it. Say, listen, I know I said I'd never put you in a nursing home, but th that will kill me. So I'm re I'm rephrasing the promise to I will give you the best care possible. And so uh, you got to recognize when it's time to take the car keys away. you got to recognize when it's time to take over their finances and, and take things out of their names because, you know, they're, they're victims to scam artists who call on the phone right. or knock on the door. And then you've got to uh, know when it's time to uh, uh, put them in a facility. And uh, and find that right facility and and get the support and and all guilt free. You know the, there should not be guilt in this process. Does that answer your um, question? And you should join support groups if you would ever need them, Absolutely. so that you can relate to other people who might be going through what you're going through. And there's so many online now that you don't even need to physically go to a place anymore, like no. I used to have to do. Adrian has a support I group. couldn't. I couldn't. Gilda's Club, yeah, gildasclub.org sent me to the wellness community, and that was where it was a cancer community, and that was where I decided I got to do this for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we've, we've run out of time. Thanks for showing up, Adrian. I appreciate yes, that. Yes, I'm. I'm glad that I did. <laughs> uh, it was how can we get a? How can people get a hold of you, Jessica, if they want to buy your book or, or uh, you know? Sure. Uh, so the Big Disruption is available. Uh, I mean, you can ask any local bookstore, and mm -hmm. if they don't have it in stock, they can order it from you. Of course, on Amazon as well, um, uh, or online at Medium. Uh, and uh, I'm also on Twitter. I occasionally tweet, even. Less occasionally, I say something interesting, uh, and that's uh, at the Moco, uh, M O K O, um, and yeah, that's that's usually the best place to find me. Great interview. That? Thank you so much for coming on, oh. Adrian. Um, oh, sorry, Adrian. It's a T H E M O K O. Thank you. All right. Till next very time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Have a nice day. Have a nice week. Have a nice month. Bye bye. <laughs> you too. Bye. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Keep breathing, take it in and let it out. Keep breathing.